Good morning, family, and welcome. On Thursday, it was Heritage Day, and while our true identity is in Christ Jesus, today we celebrate the beauty and diversity of our nation. Neil Bester will be wrapping up our series and our journey through the book of Colossians as he speaks about Christ being the center of all our relationships and how we can do more than just withstand the external pressures of this world by actually putting pressure on the worldly culture around us and transforming it. And speaking about transformation, C4G is having their online camp on the 16th to the 18th of October. So please sign up by sending an email to C4G at hatfield.co.za to ensure that your children don't miss out. For now, let's open up our hearts and let's worship together.
What a joy that we can give you praise. Every nation and tribe come to worship you, Lord. It's a joy to give you praise, Lord.
from my mother's womb You have chosen me Love has called my name I've been born again Into your family Your blood flows through my veins See from my mother's womb you have chosen me yes, Lord. Love has called my name I've been born again Into your family Chosen me, 
fantastic declaration of who we are before we are anything else we are sons and we are daughters of the Most High can you feel his love today can you feel his love pouring through your veins Christ gave us himself his blood shed on the cross for us so that whosoever calls on his name would be saved and would be born again of the Spirit. I'm encouraging you where you are right now. Say, Lord, wash me new, wash me clean. Let me be born again today. And if you've never heard that term, born again, it means that your spirit comes alive because of the one who makes your spirit alive. And his name is Jesus. There is no name by which any knee shall bow or tongue confess, but by the name of Jesus. Bow your knee to the name of Jesus today. Become born again. Give Him your life today. Make your heritage in Christ today. Thank you, Lord. We bless your name. We praise you.
rounds before the Lamb of God and sing. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. Yes, so circumstances by changing your focus look at the king of kings and worship him and glorify him and sing with us this morning he is worthy of it all far from you are all things and to you are all things you deserve the glory you're worthy you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. Sing, oh.
Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You deserve all the glory. You deserve all the glory. Yes, Lord. You alone. Yes, you deserve all the glory. You deserve all the glory. Yes, Lord. Raise your voice right there in your home and just say, Lord, all the glory is yours, Lord. All the glory is yours. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. No longer will my circumstances, my circumstances determine where my joy goes. I will have joy. Yes, Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. Day and night, night and day, blessings rise. 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 transition now in our worship to the time where we bring our offerings and our giving before the Lord. And I'd like to thank you for your generosity as you've obeyed the Lord in your giving. And I felt specifically this morning to also thank those who've been obedient to the Lord in giving and where it's perhaps cost you a little bit, where it's been sacrificial. And I felt just to say to you in particular that the Lord sees and the Lord knows. Thank you for your generosity, the, the details for the electronic transfers will be on the screen. Also, please feel free to use the snap scan that is available on the screen as you give to the Lord at this time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're a good father. Thank you that you know even the hairs, the number of hairs on our head, and that you do take care of us. We thank you for your good and faithful provision in our lives. Please accept our offerings back to you as gifts of love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the world has really changed since last time I had the opportunity and the, and the privilege of speaking to you, uh, not only with the COVID, COVID pandemic, but there's also so many changes in society and upheavals. And, you know, there's like a million voices screaming at us in social media. And there's many complex issues that we're facing and dealing with. And the discussions we're having are so crucial and important as I've been reflecting and thinking a little bit about this, and also Pastor Louis just mentioned in a, in a meeting we were in, I'm wondering if one of the underlying issues in the midst of all this complexity that we're dealing with, if one of the underlying issues isn't actually about power, how power has been held, about how power is being used, who has power, who doesn't have power, who should have power, who, doesn't, who shouldn't have power, and 
with these voices that are screaming at us in society, I'm just want to pause and say, I really want to encourage us all, particularly as followers of Christ, that we come to the scriptures first, that we come to Jesus first to look at how we deal with power. We look at Jesus who was and is all powerful, who was given all authority in heaven and on earth. How did he hold power? How did he exercise power? And that we allow our faith and the scriptures and our relationship with God to just inform our discussions on power. I wonder, as you think about your relationships, what kind of power dynamics you've experienced in relationships. And as we share further today from the book of Colossians in our series on Under Pressure, we're going to look at a passage in Colossians chapter 3 from verse 18 onwards, where we're going to engage and start thinking and discussing some of these issues. You'll remember that about three weeks ago, Pastor Louis shared with us that when we're under pressure, we don't necessarily need to learn new things. We need to dig deeper. We need, dig, need to dig deeper into who Jesus Christ is. We then also shared about going up, that we don't need new insights and new teachings and strange philosophies and ideas when we're under pressure. We actually just need to go up and embrace more of what God has for us. And then last week, Pastor Litsolo shared with us about our inner strength, and just the crucial importance of our personal relationships with Jesus Christ. How that defines us and how that strengthens and empowers us. The more we know Jesus, the better we can cope when we're under pressure. The title of my message today is Outer Display. And I've added a subtitle, Seasoned with Salt, because that's part of the text that we're going to read. We want to talk today that even though we're under pressure, we can put our faith and our, our relationship with Jesus on display and actually start causing pressure and positive change in our homes and in the world around us. We're under such pressure to conform our social lives at this time. And under this pressure, we need to dig deeper, go up and ensure that we're building our inner strength with Christ at this time. For those of you who know Hatfield well and have been around Hatfield for a while, you'll know that our, our vision at Hatfield Christian Church is that we want to see God's kingdom come in hearts and in homes and beyond. And as I've been reflecting on this series of Under Pressure, I've noted that a lot of what we've been speaking about is to do with hearts. And I was reminded of a scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Just the first part is actually important for today. But Peter writes and he says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. In our hearts, we set Jesus apart as Lord. This means we decide that Jesus is first and I'm not. Jesus is in charge and I'm not. And so many issues in our lives spring from our hearts. And how we deal with pressure is also revealed, uh, our hearts, sorry, are often also revealed when we come under pressure. And so perhaps the pressure we've been experiencing in the last number of months has been good for us because it's also shown us what is in our hearts. But it also gives us this wonderful opportunity to set, part, set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts, to revere Christ in our hearts. In today's message, I'm going to be focusing a little bit more on the second half of our vision statement, where we want to see God's kingdom come in our homes and in our beyond spaces. And so to start, I perhaps want to just put my, my proposition or thesis, I'm not sure what the right word is at this time, just to state it up front. And then we're going to look at some, uh, some context around the scripture that we're going to read, and look at some of the relational dynamics in those spaces. My contention is this, is that it's only 
in Christ. That the power dynamics that are at play in relationships can be changed. It's only in Christ that relationships can be put in correct order or actually seen from the correct perspective. And it's only in Christ that relationships can be held and, and that power dynamics in relationships can be held in the correct tension. So perhaps let me read it as I wrote it. Only in Christ can the power dynamics at play in relationships be changed, put in correct order or viewed from the correct perspective, and then held in the correct tension. The reality is we're all fallen, and all of us make mistakes in relationships. And so we're not talking today about perfection. We're talking about a positioning of our relationships under Christ. Because of our fallen nature, we often don't handle power dynamics in relationships very well, and we become selfish and self-centered. And so there's always a wonderful opportunity to take those things to Christ and to learn to be discipled and to grow. So let's start by talking about responding to pressure in our homes. And we're going to read from Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, uh, all the way through to about chapter 4, verse 7. But the first section we're going to focus on is in Colossians 3, 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. And won't you please get your devices or your Bibles ready, because it'd be just really wonderful if you can join me as we read the word together. Now, before we start reading the word, there's two very important um, contextual and interpretive matters I, I want to just uh, give us context to and bring us, bring us to all the same understanding about. What we're going to read in this first section in Colossians is what's called a household code. Household codes aren't unique to the Bible. They're actually found quite often in the Bible. Paul uh, uses one in Ephesians. He's, there's a bit in Titus. There's a bit in Timothy. Uh, even Peter in, in, in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, there's a household code there. But household codes in ancient times outside of the scriptures also weren't that foreign and strange. We know that the Stoic philosophers in the first century and later wrote household codes. Probably one of the more influential or significant household codes from ancient times was written by Aristotle in a, in a, in a book, I think. Well, I don't know if you could call it a book then, but he wrote a, a treatise on politics. And as part of that, he also wrote a household code that became hugely influential. In this household code, he describes how wives, children, and slaves need to respond and relate to the head of the home, the father of the home. It's a very one-sided discussion. There's no, you know, it's one way. It's how you relate to the father and what you do when, when the head of the household speaks in that situation. Because since before Christ, when Aristotle lived, and even right into the time of the first century, um, society was governed by households. Households were very important. They were the the building block, not only socially of society, but also economically of society. The household was the primary unit of society. You know, like today, often when you meet people, when we meet people, one of the new people at least, when the, one of the first questions we tend to ask them is, so what do you do? Uh, what's your job? Because that helps us orientate ourselves towards them. It perhaps helps us show what they're interested in. It helps us perhaps even position them in society and socially. You know, what do you do? What job do you do? What, what work do you do? Is a, one of the first questions we tend to ask. Now, I suspect in the first century, that probably wasn't the first question. The first question would most likely have been, from whose household do you come? To which household do you belong? Even, by the way, for a slave, if you belonged to an eminent household, to a, to a good household, that gave you some status in the world. Households were very important because in a society that was governed by honor and shame your household was the first place where you either gained honor or you could lose honor and one of the worst things you could do in the first century world 
was to bring shame to your household. And so households are common in the first century world. Why does Paul and why does Peter talk about households in the New Testament? And there's a bit of discussion amongst biblical scholars on this. Um, my conviction is they don't include the household codes because they want believers to conform to the norms, to the society around them. I think they include household codes for a very different reason. One of the reasons I think they do this is that we clearly understand that our faith, our relationship with Jesus Christ, must be expressed in our homes, in the household. If our faith and our relationship with Jesus, Jesus does not translate into our primary relationships, into our primarily lived spaces, then our faith hasn't permeated our lives deeply enough. There was no concept in the first century world of a private faith and a public faith. Faith was integrated in every aspect of people's lives in the first century world. And so I believe the authors of the New Testament included the household codes because they wanted to radically reorientate how faith is expressed in the private spaces. And it was part of living out the gospel in the world. I think the biblical authors do two things that are radically different from other household codes from the first century world. They radically modify them. I think they do something that's actually quite shocking, that would have been perceived as quite shocking in the culture of the time. The first thing they do is that they make Christ the primary reference point in the household codes. In the household codes that were written, for example, by Aristotle, the head of the home, the father, there was a phrase called the patria protestas, which meant literally the rule of the fathers. The household codes written by someone like Aristotle actually entrenched the power, the rule of the fathers. The biblical authors don't do that. They say the household code is determined by Christ. And hopefully as we read through these sections today, I'll be able to show you how Christ is always the primary reference point in the biblical household codes. Not Roman law, not culture, not even family tradition. Christ is the reference point in the household codes. The second thing that the biblical authors do, which is actually phenomenal, is that they argue for what I want to call a radical mutuality. A radical mutuality. Why do I call it radical? Because it's like nothing that's been seen before in the society. It's different from everything that was normal. It's different from everything that was experienced or understood at the time. They argue for a mutuality. In other words, as you read in, in all the household codes, you'll read that it speaks to wives and to husbands. It speaks to children and to fathers or children and parents. It speaks to slaves and to masters. The other household codes just gave instructions to what wives, children, and slaves should do. There was no mutuality. There was no expectation. There was no instruction given to the father because the father ruled absolutely. And so the biblical authors do these two things. They center on Christ and they argue or they propose a mutuality that was unheard of until that time. And it's difficult for us living today in a world, in a society that's governed much more by, by rights than by honor and shame to understand how revolutionary and how different this really was. So the first thing we need to understand as we approach passages like Colossians with household codes is how household codes function and how very different the New Testament household codes are from what was normal at the time. The second thing we need to remember is that we have to consider the counsel of the whole of Scripture. So when we read the household code that we're going to read shortly in Colossians, we must understand that what Paul's done there is he's actually just put in a little summary version of a household code. 
There's a fuller explanation of the household code in Ephesians chapter 5 from around verse 21 all the way through to 6-9 in Ephesians. Ephesians and Colossians, by the way, were written at the same time. They're both prison epistles. They were probably written within a matter of days of each other because the same postman, the guy's name was Tychicus. We learn this from Colossians 4. He carried the letter that we call the letter to the Ephesians and this letter to the Colossians. They were carried together. They were written at the same time. And so when I read the Colossians passages here, I must read it with Ephesians. When I consider the whole counsel of Scripture, I have to also start in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation narrative, where it very clearly tells us that male and female together are created in the image of God. Male and female together are given the dominion mandate, and male and female together are equal in value and equal in mandate in God's eyes. And it's that lens that we have to actually look at everything we read in Scripture about relationships between men and women and husbands and wives. We need to know that Paul wrote Galatians 3.28 where he said there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That our gender, our social economic distinctions, our religious persuasions are not the primary identifiers in our lives anymore. Christ becomes the primary identification in my life when I become a believer. Paul repeats this idea in a very similar fashion in Colossians chapter 3. And so we see this idea when we look at the whole council of scripture, more, much more about equality and oneness in Christ. Uh, and this is important context when we read individual passages in the scripture. So it's time for us to get into the scriptures. Let's start reading in Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to read just the sections together. So please note as I read the reciprocity, the mutuality. The wives are spoken to and the husbands are spoken to. Again, speaking to a husband, instructing a husband in the first century world is almost unheard of. It's a radical departure from the norm. And also notice how everything centered on Christ. So Colossians chapter 3 from verse 18 and 19. It reads as follows. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so Paul addresses husbands and wives. First to the wives, he uses the submission word. And I understand that for many perhaps hearing this, that's already a red flashing light and is causing major difficulty for you. And I think it's important that we understand what Paul is saying here. Firstly, I want to highlight that, you, that wives submit as is fitting in the Lord. What does that mean in the context of your relationship? What is fitting in the Lord? Not what is fitting in culture, not what is fitting in law, not what was fitting in Roman times. What is fitting in the Lord? Now, this word submission does have an idea or a connotation of ordering things. But it fundamentally comes to the understanding that it's about yielding the heart. So wives, Paul says, is yield your heart to your husbands. Yield, submit yourself. Submission is not something that a husband forces on his wife. Submission is something that a wife offers her husband, a yielding of the heart. She chooses it herself. By the way, this same word is used in Ephesians chapter 5, 21, where the general principle is given that we submit ourselves, submit ourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. Again, reverence for Christ. Christ is the primary reference, but the submission is mutual. We live with yielded hearts as believers towards one another, whether that's husbands and wives, whether that's children and parents, whether, as in the first century, it was slaves and masters. We live with yielded hearts. But Paul asks the wives to live with yielded hearts, to yield their hearts themselves. 
Husbands are instructed to love. Love, in, in what Ephesians says, as Christ loved the church. Love your wives. Love by a higher standard. Love by an unselfish standard. If you were to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 around agape love, the, the love that is centered on the other, that's our husband's love. Now, in the first century world, marriages were much more transactional. And women were married much younger, probably somewhere between 12 and 15 years old, to men who were slightly older or sometimes much older than them. And instructing a husband to love his wife self selflessly, to love his wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church, is unheard of in that time. It's completely revolutionary. And husbands should not be harsh. The, the Greek probably more accurately conveys this idea of embittered. Husbands should not become embittered to their wives. And so often, husbands don't use their power well in these spaces. And I want to encourage the husbands, just be aware of the power of the, your voice in your home. Use your voice to love, not to be harsh. And often, I, I fail at this, sometimes very badly, and, it, and I misuse, I don't love well when I don't use the power I have to love, when I don't use the power I have to serve in these relationships. And so there's a mutuality. Wives have something to do that is fitting in the Lord. Husbands have to love as, is, as Christ loves. We read on in Colossians about the other, another aspect of the household code, and that's the relationship between children and fathers specifically. There's some thought that because the father's here is written in a, in a plural form that it might be referring to parents in general. But nevertheless, Colossians chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 reads as follows. Children, obey your parents in everything as it pleases, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Again, the Lord is the primary reference for children. What pleases the Lord. It would be very nice if children could obey their parents, their fathers in particular, in everything. But I don't think we live in that world perfectly. But let's call it an aspirational goal for our children. But importantly, fathers, don't make it difficult for your children. Don't push them and drive them so hard that they become discouraged. In fact, as I was preparing for the sermon, one of the phrases that was used in the first century world is fathers whip your children regularly because that will make them strong and good men. It's shocking. That is not how the New Testament authors believe that fathers should relate to their children. Children have a role, and fathers have a role. Parents have a role. There's a mutuality that is centered on what pleases the Lord in this place. Scott McKnight, one of the commentators who speaks on this passage, had a great phrase, uh, and it was so good, I, just, I thought I just had to share it with you. He said that love transforms power to nurture. When a father loves his children, it transforms the power that he has to nurture. Love transforms power to nurture. And so in this aspect of the household code, we see too the mutuality between children and fathers. The next part of the household code speaks about slaves and masters. Now in the first century world, slaves, although they weren't family, were regarded as being part of the household. They were part of the property that formed part of the household. And I don't think here that Paul, for example, is, is um, endorsing slavery. He's dealing with the reality of first century households. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 to 25, reads as follows. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart 
and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working as for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be, will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. Please note again, it's about the reverence for the Lord. It's interesting, and, and I don't think we can quite equate employees and slaves. They're quite different. But perhaps by analogy or by extension, we can learn some principles here. So Paul is saying to slaves, you might work for this master, but you serve Christ. Employees, you might work for this company or this boss, but while you're working there, you're actually serving Christ. Out of reverence for the Lord, again, Christ becomes the primary reference point for the slaves who are believers in how they serve their masters. It almost becomes like that their master's conduct becomes secondary. What becomes primary is that they, in serving their masters, are serving Christ. The mutuality is again expressed in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Not only does Paul address the slaves, he addresses the masters. Again, highly unusual in the first century world. He says, masters, provide your slaves what is right and fair. Telling a master what to do with his slave was unheard of at the time. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You see, there's a real sense where we're all also bond servants. We're all slaves of Christ and we have a master who is good and just and fair. And Paul is appealing to the masters here to mirror Christ in their relationships also with those who work for them and those who serve them in this space. So whether you're a wife or a husband, a child or a parent, whether you're an employer or employee, if I can jump the analogy a little bit, we live towards Christ. He is our primary reference point. There's a mutuality in all these relationships in the household. And only Christ is enough in our relational areas. If I may, I'd like to repeat the proposition I made earlier on in the message. It's only in Christ that the power dynamics at play in relationships can be changed, they can be put in correct order or be viewed from the proper perspective and held in the correct tension. And so as we look at our outer display, how we put pressure on the world around us, we need to have godly relationships in our homes where Christ is the primary reference point. Our faith must be expressed in our homes. But what about the beyond? How do we create pressure beyond? And we find this uh, in the rest of Colossians chapter 4 all the way through from verse 2 to verse 6 that we're going to read today. And it's interesting, I note, that as Paul starts transitioning away from the household, the first thing he speaks about is prayer. And one of the ways we start being, putting our faith on outer display, we start exerting pressure on the world around us, is to never underestimate the importance of prayer. Colossians chapter 4 Verse 2 to 4 reads as follows. It says, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, Paul writes. He says that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So even the Apostle Paul is not shy. He's not ashamed to ask for prayer. He's been proclaiming the gospel all over the world, but he still asks for prayer. Let's not underestimate the power and the privilege of prayer as we engage beyond our homes in relationships, perhaps in your workplace, in your social circles beyond your family. 
bring prayer into that. Make prayer a part of that. Pray through your meetings. Be watchful and be thankful. Be thankful for the opportunities we have in prayer. Let thankfulness condition the way we pray. So pray for our relationships outside our homes. Pray for your relationships in your workspace. The second aspect of our outer display that Paul addresses after prayer in Colossians chapter 4 is lifestyle and conversations. Our lifestyle and our conversations. Let me read chapter 4, Colossians 4 verse 5 and 6 for us. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know an answer, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The first thing Paul advises as we deal with outsiders is that we be wise. Let's be wise not only in our speech, it's about in the way we act, that refers to our lifestyle. Paul is meaning and talking about our lifestyle there. Let your lifestyle to others reflect that you're going deeper in Christ, that you're going up in Christ, that your inner strength comes from Christ. Let your lifestyle reflect that. I believe in the social context of today. Be wise in how you exercise power in your relationships. A very important verse, and we, and we don't have time to turn there today, is in uh, Philippians chapter 2, a very important passage. Philippians chapter 2, from verse 5 to 11. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, In your relationships, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And the passage goes on and it says, Jesus was being in the very nature of God. He had all status, all power, all authority. Yet he chose to humble himself and serve others. Let's be wise in our lifestyles. Let's not let our lifestyles compromise our testimony in Christ and the fact that we live towards Christ. And often our wisdom and practically really just needs to be expressed in the conversations we have. If we think about the conversations we're having not only in our homes but beyond, the conversations we're having with others, are they full of grace, as the NIV translates? Uh, the, the parallel ideas, are they seasoned with salt? Are your conversations godly? Are your conversations graceful? Are your conversations clear? that others know that what you're saying matches with how you live. Because when you have this quality of grace in your conversation, when you're wise in your lifestyles, what happens then is others might go, why are you different? Why don't you shout back at your boss when he shouts at you? Why do you respond in humility with grace and with kindness? Why aren't you shouting at your employees or your colleagues? And when those questions come, then you're ready to have an answer because my life is centered on Jesus. My life is radically orientated to live to please Jesus Christ. I live my life. In my heart, Christ is revered as Lord. He's first and I am not. He's in charge and I am not. And so my life is conditioned by someone other, by Jesus Christ, not by myself. And so let's have godly relationships in our homes. Let's have godly relationships beyond our homes. Let's be wise. Let our conversations and our lifestyles be seasoned with salt. And the rest of the passage in Colossians chapter 4 gives us the snapshot of Paul's relationships within the church. As he mentions Tychicus and Aristarchus and Mark and Epaphras, who by the way was the church plant at Colossae, who's now with Paul. He mentions Demas and the other brothers at the churches a nearby town in Laodicea. And he even mentions Nympha, who's a lady and he's a head of a household. 
And so we have this snapshot of the godly relationships that are developing in the first century churches. So as we consider bringing God's kingdom into our hearts, but also particularly today into our homes and beyond. And we want to make a difference. We want to exert pressure for the kingdom and not just be under pressure all the time. Let's start in our relationships. Perhaps activism can come later, but let's make sure that our relationships are seasoned with salt, that our relationships are wise, that our conversations are graceful. And so that Apostle Louis shared a number of weeks ago around this Greek word epignosis. It's this experiential knowing. When I bring Christ into my relationships, when I make Christ the primary source in my relationships, I have an experiential knowing of Jesus in those spaces, in my marriage, in my relationship with my children, in my relationship in the workspaces. And so how do we season our relationships with salt? I have just five thoughts for you this morning. Five thoughts on how we can season our relationships with salt. Firstly, I want to invite you to submit your relationships to the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit every relationship, whether it's in your family, whether it's with your spouse, your children, in the workplace. Submit all your relationships to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make Jesus the primary reference point in your relationships, not the society around you, not what's normal in your workplace, not what your company culture dictates, not what society dictates. Make Jesus the primary reference point in your relationship. Submit your relationships to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The second thing I think I would encourage you to do if you want your relationships to be seasoned with salt is to forgive from the bottom of your heart. Whether that's a spouse, whether that's a child, whether that's a parent, whether it's a co-worker, whether it's a boss, Many people have been retrenched and had reduced salaries. Perhaps you need to forgive even the company, the institution that you work for in this space. Forgive from the bottom of your heart. Because when our hearts are free, we can love. When our hearts are free, we're not intimidated by power dynamics. When our hearts are free, we can serve one another in love. So forgive from the bottom of your heart. And I'm aware that there may be deep pain in this area. And that's why I've said you need to forgive and invite you to forgive from the bottom of your heart. Thirdly, we can make sure our relationships are seasoned with salt if we need to repent where it's necessary. If we've perhaps exercised power wrongly, if we haven't been all that mutual in our engagements, if we haven't put Christ as this primary reference point in our relationships, we need to repent where necessary. Remember the word repentance has this idea of changing your mind and also, I think, changing your heart. Change your mind about how you've been engaging in relationships where you've been harsh and difficult and wrong. Repent where necessary. Particularly for parents, don't be ashamed to go to your children and say, I'm so sorry, I really got that wrong. I remember once my daughter came to me and Actually, she quoted a part of a sermon that I did, and she said, you're not saying, you're not behaving like you preached. It's always wonderful just to hear that. And so after I told her she was being cheeky, I managed to humble myself and say, you know what? You're right. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Repent where necessary. Next, fourthly, I think we must give respect and practice mutuality that's centered on Christ. We must work towards giving respect and 
practicing mutuality in all our relationships in Christ. And this takes practice, but if we're intentional, if we ensuring that what is fitting in the Lord, what pleases the Lord, be aware that we serve the Lord Christ in all our relationships, we'll start bringing a better dynamic into our relationships. And lastly, don't forget to pray. Don't forget to pray through your relationships, to pray about your relationships. It's critical. It can change the world, if I may say that. And so this morning, before we pray, as I close the service, please remember that if you do want further prayer ministry, details will come on the screen. Please click those links and there will be people waiting there for you who can pray with you and who can stand with you in prayer in these spaces. Please click on the link or follow it if you're on the church online platform. Please go into a prayer room and somebody will join you and pray for you as soon as they can. So let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the king of our hearts, that you do want us to live out our faith, our relationship with you in our primary spaces, in our homes, but also to take you beyond our homes. Lord, I pray that as we submit our relationships to you, you would bring new life, you would bring healing, you would bring reconciliation, you would bring restoration in every relationship in our lives. But Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit that lives in us and works in us and works through us, you would give us the power to love, to love unselfishly, to love authentically, and to love in a real way that is needed by others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you as you go into the week. Take Christ with you into every space.
Yeah. 